Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Morning, Augie. Morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, lovely, thanks. Um, and uh, uh, we have a guest today. We do have a guest. It's very exciting. Yes, uh, it is. So we have a fellow librarian, Eric Johnson, who's here. He's the head of the workshop. And um, people who come to the library will know what that means is the basement where all the cool stuff happens. That's Eric's department. So he does what 3D printing and and the the sound studio and the video studio and what you have sewing machines or you have all kinds of stuff down there, right, Eric? Cameras and audio recorders, all that stuff people could check out. And then, like you say, these studios in our spaces for people to use. And even better, people to help you use those things. That's the big key. That is the big key, because you could hand me a camera and I'd be like, huh, and I'd probably put out an eye unless somebody showed me how to use it. So, or I'd make that picture that we were talking about earlier um, for listeners. You'll be hearing this later in the summer, but we're recording kind of here in the spring. And a picture just came out of um, President Biden and Dr. Biden who visited um, President Carter and Mrs. Carter. And boy, was that not a good picture. They could have used the workshop to help them figure that out. That's, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Yeah, but you're Eric, not here. Oh, sorry, Augie. No, but to Eric's point, um, uh, for our uh, longstanding listeners, well, when we first started this podcast, uh, we used the studio. Um, and we had some of Eric's fine staff um, actually teach us, um, and, and, and by the way, uh, this was definitely the case for me, less so with Nia, okay? Uh, we were rank amateurs, okay, with heavy emphasis on the adjective rank. Oh, yeah. As, <laughs> as it related oh, yeah. to, okay, um, what the studio could do for us. Um, oh. So. Les um, Ken and John and Keys and all the students who yeah, yeah. I mean, this, pulled us and pushed us and got us through to where we could do that. And then and then Zoom happened because of the pandemic. Uh, yeah. Um, but today, uh, uh, listeners, um, Eric's not uh, uh, with us uh, because of his expertise Okay, in all things um, uh, library. Um, he's here. He's wearing uh, a different hat. Yeah, he's wearing a different hat. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, 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 if you saw the, the actual visual like recording, okay, he's actually wearing a hat. Um, uh, he's here to talk about uh, the national parks uh, in the United States. Um, and, uh, uh, and we feel very fortunate to have Eric join us today. So Eric, can you start with why you have what what we in the library your colleagues call a gentle obsession with the national parks is like when I said I want to cover the national parks six or seven of our colleagues were like you're going to get Eric to do that right so <laughs> it's a, like a known thing can you what what's up with that that's funny that well yeah really what is up with that actually um yeah it's actually a really good question as to sort of why I have had a lifelong love of the national parks um I grew up in Northern Virginia, so sort of the national park environs of DC was, you know, very easily accessible, right? Like running downtown and seeing the monuments and going onto the mall and stuff like that. Um, and sort of my biggest nature experiences were heading out to the Shenandoah Valley. So we would go to like Shenandoah National Park and the Blue Ridge Parkway, um, hike on the Appalachian Trail. I mean, I've never hiked the entire AT but we hike on sections of the Appalachian Trail. Um, at one point I did a big volunteer project at the CNO Canal, which is a national park unit um, as well. But the big thing that really sort of really kicked off my adult love of the national parks was a trip that my family took. My wife and I went with her mother and brother um, from weirdly Milwaukee, Wisconsin, all the way out to Seattle by van. My mother-in-law had just bought a new van, and so we decided we were going to break it in by doing this trip. We met her in Milwaukee because she had been visiting family in Wisconsin, 
Um, okay, I, I, I got to yeah. pause you right now, Eric. Was this a minivan or was this a, a regular van? Oh, this was a minivan. <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Wow, but that's cool because you drove across Montana, which most people cannot say they have driven across Montana. Yeah, right. That was like, that's like it. saying I drove across three European countries. Right, exactly, exactly. It's, in it's one huge. State. So yeah. Yeah, and we did. I mean, we sort of like in our minds, I think Milwaukee was like halfway across the country. And so we were doing like, you know, the other half of the country. And then we looked at map. And we're like, no, that's like two thirds of the US that we're going across. And two thirds of that is Montana. Um, so, but yeah, so we did this trip, you know, sort of a two weeks, I think it was, hitting national park units all the way out and back. So we actually drove that both directions. Um, uh, and then, you know, so you camped. So we didn't camp, we stayed at hotels. Oh, we did okay. a couple, you know, sort of hotels or lodges that we knew we were gonna stay in. And then the rest was a little bit kind of like, as we we're approaching evening, let's look ahead and sort of find a place that we could stay, you know, plenty of oh, classic fun. kind of road trip. Oh, that's whoa, great. Whoa, 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 fun? Classic road trip. Okay. Some of the, some of the worst discussions I've ever had, Nia, is at the end of the day, when you're tired, Okay, and you're trying to decide where to pull off, okay, to actually, you know, find, you know, shelter for the night. God bless you all for actually <laughs> having those conversations. And we still love each other. It's very Good impressive. Lord. Okay. And <laughs> some of our listeners, I imagine you know what I'm talking about because you've spent all day with the same people. You're tired. Okay. And somebody says, I think we need to go ahead and find something at the next exit. And somebody else goes, oh, no, we can go forward for another half hour, 45 right. minutes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You've got the person, you've got the person who, who drives where they don't stop except for food and gas or, and to go to the bathroom. And you must do all three of those in the same in the same place so that we don't have to stop as often, right? Yes. That was my father. And then you have my mother who who was like, let's pull off at this scenic byway and look over the gorge. Let's pull off it. And, but he drove with purpose and she drove with sort of like sidebar until we would run into something like the giant ball of twine, which my father insisted that we pull off and pay to go see. So I, it's funny it sounds like that kind of trip which I just think is marvelous and I think it's marvelous that you that you married into a family who also likes to do that sort of thing yeah well the and to to towards that the big thing that happened was of course early on we got one of those national park passport books you know every ah. every park unit has a stamp that you can stamp into this passport book um and it turns out this year is the 30th anniversary of that program I learned um oh yay yeah yeah but but <laughs> And of course, being a family, at some point, conversation came up about making it a competition. <laughs> and we decided that every year we were going to start sort of recording, you know, where we go with these national park passports. Um, and whoever at the end of the year had the most stamps sort of won, right? Like, you know, and if you're going to win something, you have to win something. And my mother-in-law just trying, like she was trying to think of the kind of ridiculous, most ridiculous things she could think of, said, you know, whoever wins, I will bake a special muffin. And so we're like, done. You know, that's all, like we needed a prize, that's the prize. And so we started calling these muffin stamps. Like in our minds, that's what those are called. Ah. And so we sort of forget that nobody else would ever <laughs> refer to it that way. It's the National Park Passport book, you know, but it's the muffin stamps. And Ultimately, it ended up that we mounted a muffin on a trophy. So we have an actual physical trophy. There is now well recorded around the base of the trophy, the winner of the annual muffin competition. My mother-in-law would report it in her like Christmas letter every year because people would get all obsessed. Like who won this year? Like, you know, did Mike win? Did Eric and Cheryl win? You know, <laughs> like who won? And so, and we sort of wound down, of course, COVID was a big interruption anyway but my mother-in-law has sort of retired from the game by now um uh, and so so we, i think the trophy i believe is still at our house and needs to be updated but um because <laughs> <laughs> past couple of years have not been recorded but sort of this this idea of hitting parks as you go through the year has been something that we've continued to do 
And, you know, the thing about my wife, Cheryl, and I keep chuckling at is like, every time we go to a park, we're like, man, there's a really good reason this is here. <laughs> like, this is really interesting, whether it's a historical park or, you know, nat national, excuse me, natural park. Um, you know, any, it's sort of any reason, of course, there's a reason it's there. And it's well, basically it, always really interesting. Okay, so uh, Eric, you just made an important distinction. Um, we have national parks that um, were created for, if you will, historical reasons versus those that are quote unquote, natural parks. And is there an easy way to distinguish between those two? Um, in a manner of speaking, yes and no. And that'll probably come up a lot of times as we talk. Yes and no is the okay. right answer. Um, that is the major distinction that there are these natural parks, you know, sort of natural areas and historical sites or cultural sites. Those are sort of the, the two big distinctions. Um, Wait, I have a question. Sure. So by natural, is that sort of more like a preserve? You're trying to this chunk of nature is not allowed to be built on or done something to or whatever. Is that the point? Yeah, loosely that? speaking, that's exactly it. It's to preserve a, you know, a notable scenic view or natural sort of resource or ecosystem. Um, so, and, and those so, have evolved over time. I mean, the earliest parts were like, this is scenic madness. And so that's what we want to preserve, <laughs> right? Like it's this amazing place. So you know, Yellowstone, and, and for instance, Yellowstone would be a quote unquote natural park. Right. But someplace like Gettysburg, okay, um, is more of a kind of sort of historical. I mean, because, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from central Pennsylvania. And let's face it, okay, if there wasn't a big civil war battle, okay, and for listeners from Pennsylvania, okay, you can give me crap all you want, but let's face it. There's not a lot going on yet, Gettysburg, okay, but if it wasn't for the fact that there was an infamous Civil War battle there, okay, there's not a quote-unquote, there's not a geyser shooting out out of the ground, right. okay, right. in Gettysburg, right, right. okay. Yeah, the, and the, the designation kind of question is that, generally speaking, a thing that is formally called a national park and that's part of the confusion is that we refer to all these units, what the Park Service calls national park units. There are 423 national park units, but there are only 63 national parks. You know, the, okay. the big things, the big, scenic, beautiful, geyser-filled, mountain-filled, <laughs> um, you know, kind of areas. But there are now, I think it's 19 different designations for kinds of national park units. Um, so there are national battlefield parks or national military parks, you know, to sort of stick with the military side of things or national lake shores or um, things, you know, national recreation areas, um, wild and scenic rivers. I mean, all of these things are particular kinds of things. And a lot of time, I mean, there's sort of been trying to, to, um, to sort of codify it a little bit more about what's in each kind of thing. But a lot of times it's it's been a little catch as catch can in terms of congressional naming because it's always Congress confusing things. So if I'm hearing you correctly, someone took a simple system and bureaucratized it to the point where now nobody can even figure out what something should be called. And Congress just says, oh, call it a battlefield because that's what it feels like. I, I mean, to give them a little credit, I would say that is what happened. And now they're trying to make it sort of make more sense again, you know, okay. so loosely speaking, you can sort of start to tell what is, you know, by its name, what the nature of the site is, um, you know, national historic site is going to be a cultural historical thing, right? Memorials become confusing. We may talk about that in a bit, because that was a specific designation that the president could apply to an area to conserve it originally historical but then also scientific merit and then so you start again confusing them but that didn't involve congress at all so <laughs> presidents could just be like boom there's you know there's or excuse me not before I, I said before i meant monuments excuse me national monument um you know and so that the the um you know congress wasn't involved in those kinds of designations at all um 
though so, sometimes those have then become national parks is, or that it, kind of thing. Is that done by executive order? Is that what it that is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So executive order 4,922, this statue is now a, a national monument. Right, right. And you can't or, just go take it Grand down without, Canyon, you know, so. <laughs> I'm sorry, or this. Or I said Grand Canyon. Ah, So. oh, the Grand Canyon. Well, anyway, we'll get to that. Yeah. But, but I have a sort of more fundamental question, which is, we have not always had national parks, right? We've not always had anything like that's been designated or put aside. Like the founders didn't say, you know what, let's take this chunk of Pennsylvania, which we think in the future might be super important and stick it aside somewhere. Like that's not, that didn't happen, right? Right. right. For them, yeah. all of it was nature preserved because they didn't have industrial, they weren't building on it. So when did it become right. a thing? Yeah, it's an interesting kind of history really i mean because of course you know going back to the middle ages in england right or in europe you know this idea of a preserve or a park of some nature was there but that was for the aristocracy and the nobility right like these are enclosed like they were kept natural quote unquote you know kind of idea mostly like hunting preserves i mean if you think about like robin hood getting in trouble for hunting the king's deer you know that's because like Kings would have a deer park where it was sort of, you know, the 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 um, the land was being managed to sustain like a deer population to make the nobles like trot out on their lovely horses and go kill some you know deer like that and that was a, a lovely way to spend a day or a couple of days, but that was not available to the people, right? You know, that was just not a thing. Um, there were you know the in the U.S. or or the pre-U.S. the colonial. U.S., of course, towns would have commonses, or that also was in Europe too, right? Like an area of sort of natural area within the confines of the urban community, right? Um, often they would like have sheep and cattle in there, that sort of thing. But that was also a bit of nature kind of available to people without having to hike outside of town. Um, and, you know, but, but the, the um, idea of kind of setting aside land or this concern for trying to, to um, create a natural area really started to come out. I mean, it sort of pops up occasionally in the 18th and early 19th century. Um, Thomas Jefferson had, when he discovered, when he, when he ran across <laughs> Natural Bridge here in Virginia, um, which is a beautiful stone arch that, you know, was out in the, in the Shenandoah Valley area, um, he sort of specifically said at that point, you know, I want to buy this land so that nobody else can keep people from seeing it. You know, it was ah. still private property. And he did, he spent 20 shillings, bought it from the king, you know, to, to have this property. But his thinking was people need to see this sublimity, you know, of, of this natural wonder, right? Oh, Niagara so he Falls, bought it, but he left it open. So he bought it, but people could visit it. Yeah, okay. yeah, um, yeah. There was actually an enslaved man that he had there who would like, show people the arch and stuff. So oh. that's sort of interesting, you know, sort of precursor to the idea of a park, I guess. Um, and then Niagara Falls had, you know, sort of been discovered as this massive, amazing wonder that the world needed to see. And, you know, it was part of this idea of the U.S. has this incredible scenery. Europe should come and see this amazing wild America kind of idea. Niagara Falls fell down because they didn't preserve it in any sort of way that we would recognize a park. So all these people had, you know, like they bought up all the scenic overlooks and would charge people to go see it. And like guides would, you know, hang out like vultures at carriage stops or later on railroad stations and sort of glom onto people as often happens when you go to tourist sites today. You know, these sort of people leap on you to try to say like, I'm a guide, I'll show you around. You know? and yes, so, that happens in it, quite a bit in a number of European cities that I've been to. Yeah. If you get off the train, there'll be people there holding up, you know, things and saying we're guides you can get on our bus it leaves in 10 minutes or whatever right okay so a similar yeah. idea so exactly. but then then sort of the early 19th century course transcendentalism started to come up in in u.s sort of this idea that god can be found in nature not sort of in the works of humanity not in churches not in places like that and so that that became a real force kind of cultural force um 
and people started thinking about this idea, you know, in, in sort of, in many people's thinking at the time and since then, you know, nature is only so helpful as we can make use of it, right? Like if we can uh. mine it, we can cut it down, we can burn it, that's good. Just looking at it doesn't do us any good. But that idea started to get some pushback from transcendentalists and others who were sort of like, you know, there actually is some merit in having this kind of emotional attachment to a bigger view. Um, well, and nature as art. And nature is art, exactly. Right, like yeah. that art in and of itself is not particularly right. valuable beyond what people are willing to pay for, it, you know, like whatever. But but the act of looking at it is somehow transformative right. for right. many people. Right, exactly, um, exactly. You know, and, and so there were some sort of nascent ideas of preserving certain areas. Um, the Hot Springs, Arkansas, in 1830s, Andrew Jackson administration had sort of more or less said that's ours you can't build on it but they didn't do anything with it they didn't promote this as a thing to to go visit you know they actually just sort of let people lease it and sort of build around that area anyway but it was sort of reserved to the u.s instead of just sold off i mean typically of course all this western land was the u.s owned it until somebody settled on it put in a claim and then they could you know then it was their private property um Kind of idea. So the idea of setting aside some areas was kind of new, and there were smaller kind of um, local park kind of ideas. But these big, big thing was a was a new concept that came up really nineteenth century, late nineteenth century, as we'll probably talk about. So you get that more in the settling of the West. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I okay, I can sum up my knowledge of the vague beginnings of national parks by saying i know that teddy roosevelt was somehow involved and i know that john muir was somehow involved and john muir founded the audubon society i sierra think club. Sierra, sierra club, club. okay yeah. sorry there was also oh right john audubon hello yeah. but anyway that you have like somehow a nexus comes together and in my mind what you have is teddy roosevelt and then you have a big x where the thing is unknown and then you have national parks right so that's it that's it is that the <laughs> yeah. equation that's and x is just unknown okay right. teddy roosevelt arrow box arrow <laughs> So what is that? Like, yeah. So, I mean, really the people talk about basically Yosemite in California as being the first real kind of national park idea. It's not the first national park, but this, this sort of government preserving big view happened in Yosemite in the 1850s, early 1850s, um, the, you know, white settlers in the Sierra Nevada who were there, of course, because it was California gold rush, 1848, 49, 50, you know. So they, as white people so often have done, formed a unit to go ride through the mountains trying to round up Indians and put them into reservations because now the white people wanted all this area. And one of those groups came across this valley with this thousand foot waterfall and all this incredible scenic vista. Most of those soldiers couldn't care less about that because they were there like looking for Indians. One of the guys who was there did sort of stop and be like, this is incredible. This is this amazing place. Don't any of you agree? And basically none of them did. But once they came back, whatever, scenic, it's not useful. Like who cares? (laughs) Um, So after this sort of 1851 incursion to the valley, some descriptions of it got out. Um, and there was a guy, um, James Mason Hutchins, Hutchings, who um, basically read about that. He had been trying to make his fortune in the West, decided that the way to do that was to publish about California's scenic wonder, you know. And so when he saw this little report, about thousand foot waterfall, like what's that about? He and a group of basically tourists went in in 1855 into what we you know, now know as the Yosemite Valley. Um, and he was like, this, you know, like, this is it. He had an artist with him who sketched it. So when he got back to, you know, quote unquote, civilization himself, he started publishing about this amazing scenic valley accompanied by lithographs. And people are like, this is amazing. Like, we should go see this. And he 
decided that what he needed to do was go back and and um you know basically set up shop as a tour guide and um um kind of a hotel I would I hesitate to call it a hotel um a lodging keeper <laughs> so he's sort of the Rick Steves of his day yeah exactly exactly right? come here yeah, yeah. it's gorgeous it's fabulous it's amazing come and visit this and so and now go away because we right, don't want right. you to live here right because so, we don't want you, we don't want people to move there and ruin it we just want you to visit and then go away. Well, he sort of wanted people to move there and ruin. I mean, I, he would not say ruin it, of course, but there was some starting kind of to, to create some tension between like, to what extent do we develop this thing versus preserve it? And that's a tension that keeps coming up with National Park kind of establishment. 1864 comes and a congressman, uh, one of the senators, the junior senator from California, basically put in a bill into Congress saying, you know, a, a cadre of, um, you know, wealthy or, or you know, um, important people have asked me to put this in, basically. I mean, the bill doesn't <laughs> say that, but that was sort of his own logic um, to preserve this valley. Um, and so, you know, this is 1864. It's in the middle of the Civil War. Battle of the Wilderness is going on. This comes through Congress. And there wasn't a whole ton of debate about it. I mean, one, one senator opposed it because he's like, again, this is useless. Like, all we're going to do is prevent ourselves from being able to make money selling this land but nobody really disputed the idea of setting that aside um and so oh. he ended up you know passing this bill um in the house it was kind of funny the 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 house supporter for the house sponsor for it you know in his speech was basically saying you know we have done our due diligence there is nothing useful about this land. Like you can't farm it. You can't do anything else on it. So let's go ahead and preserve it. Right. You know, like that's uh, fine. Um, and so that did pass. And so Yosemite was set aside as this nationally owned, but what they immediately did was turn it over to the state of California to manage it. Um, wow. So the state of California was sort of given administrative authority over it. So it's not really a national park the way we would think of it now. Um, California had that Fast forward, I mean, not to spew onward, but then John Muir moved in um, after this Yosemite grant was created. And he, of course, fell in love with these mountains. He moved there as a basically a sheep herder and sawyer. But what he was looking for was the sublimity of nature, places where, you know, he's very famous for, of course, going out to the mountains for days and communing with rocks and things. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, he really, you know, sort of, loved this experience, got very troubled at the way that this land was being managed, this park area, this grant was being managed, ultimately ended up, you know, much later, 1890s, passing, uh, you know, sort of helping a, a passage for land surrounding that grant to be preserved as a national park. But we could talk about that later, because then finally that grant ended up also being incorporated into what is a much more national park. But point just being that this was set aside, but it wasn't yet at that point in the 1860s, a national park, because again, it was sort of California theoretically managing it, which meant hiring one guy who they often didn't pay to kind of keep tabs on it while all these people kept showing up, you know, to experience the sublimity of nature and to start building buildings and stuff there. I mean, nobody was really stopping that from happening. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So. I didn't realize that there were buildings. Augie? Well, so a few moments ago, Nia uh, mentioned um, President uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, and this had to be a couple years ago. Um, uh, Nia and I were making reference to uh, an old West Wing episode uh, where Josh Lyman goes ahead and encourages President Bartlett uh, to go ahead and designate something as a national monument per one of my favorite laws of all time, the Antiquities Act of 1906, okay? <laughs> um, so what was Roosevelt's role here in regards to, um, if you will, pushing along this idea of a, a National Park Service, okay? Yeah, yeah, um, so he, he um, basically, you know, was at that point a well-established outdoorsman and hunter and, you know, Rough Rider and Teddy Bully Teddy, you know, all those good things. Um, he had visited the Sierra Nevada and Yosemite in 1903, visited with John Muir, who of course kind of 
um, urged on him these notions of preservation of nature. But in 1906, um, one of the things, or by 1906, one of the things that had started happening in a lot of Western public lands, um, park lands, other sites, was um, you know, a bunch of, of um, ancient Puebloan people sites had been found in the West, like Chaco Canyon, if any of the listeners may be familiar with that, or Mesa Verde, um, you know, cliff dwellings. These sites had started to be found that were full of pots and other kind of antiquities. And without any control, people were just moving in and like taking all that stuff out and selling it, right? Like they would just go into some of these amazing sites where it still looked like people had just left, even though it was hundreds of years earlier, there were pots sitting out, there were, you know, fire pits that were visible. I mean, these kinds of things were amazing in these sites. And these people that, that got the nickname pot hunters would just come through and like sweep all that stuff out and go sell it off to the highest bidder basically um like the valley of the kings so yeah yeah exactly british with egypt where the british came in and were like well we're here let's just take stuff and take it home or sell it or do whatever right right exactly Uh, and it some people probably convinced themselves that they were preserving it in that way Right, right. right. Somebody they were, needs to keep this, right? Exactly. Uh, Somebody yeah. needs to keep this, that kind of thing. Not thinking in terms of the archaeological value of looking at things in their place before right. you move them. Like now when we find a thing, we photograph the ever-living snot out of it. We take radar. We do all kinds of stuff so that we could, in fact, put it back if we had to exactly the way it was to study it which they didn't do until relatively recently in science like that yeah exactly i mean there were a turn of the century was not they didn't preserve in situ anything like that that's not yeah there were a couple people that were doing that kind of idea you know sort of nascent proper you know sort of modern archaeological practice but these folks typically weren't that at all they didn't care they just wanted the thing so they could sell the thing because it's like free money, right? Like sitting on the ground. And so as a response to that, there became more and more pressure to um, be able to rapidly respond to a problem like that. And so the Antiquities Act was created in 1906, um, which is really a marvelous um, uh, kind of idea, basically giving the president the authority to declare something a national monument, full stop, just, you know, this sort of area. Um, one of the things that was, let me see. Does if I that can... also include enforcement power that you can send somebody out to protect it? Or do you In... just say that's, I declare that off limits. And then people are like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of me stealing stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that, that was the challenge actually. And that was what sort of ended up giving rise to a more formal park service in 1916 was this idea that we really do need to have somebody protect these areas. Sometimes in some of these areas, the army was sent as sort of the best sort of federal policing that we've got at the moment um, to protect these areas. Often they they had an administrator or this kind of person you know, who might have a small staff kind of thing, but usually of course it's like one or two people for this huge area. Um, okay. But one of the things that was really, um, kind of interesting in the enacting legislation for the Antiquities Act was that originally the wording was just going to say something like, you know, the president can name this thing a national monument, but nothing more than 640 acres, you know, because anything more than that, like Congress needs to be involved. And kind of at the last minute, the wording of that got changed to the smallest area compatible with the proper care and management of the objects to be protected. Right. So scientific objects or cultural objects, things like that. Um, And oh, so if it's a mountain and the mountain is considerably more acreage than that, then you get the whole mountain. You don't just get the tippy tippy or whatever. Right. Exactly. Or Or like the small site on the side of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, for instance, the largest national monument we now have, which has actually been conglomerated from a couple, it wasn't one fell swoop that made this happen, but it's, I think, 373 million acres out in the Pacific Ocean, northwest of Hawaii. There is a a national marine monument or marine national monument out there. Um, 
that is basically just under the size of Alaska. <laughs> and so, it, so these water are, and land or so just water, water and land, like little oh. atoll land out uh. there. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not managed by the Park Service. That's a, a Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA manages that one, which is an interesting kind of side thing, is that not every one of these national lands is a National Park Service coordinated thing. Like there are lands that were, uh, that are managed by others. You're getting ahead because we're going to get to that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Augie, did you have a question? Well, I, or a comment? Well, with the Antiqui Antiquities Act, I mean, in reading the statute, it gave such broad authority to the president, right? I mean, in many ways, it was entirely dependent upon a president and a president would go ahead and get to decide, okay? I mean, that, that to me is one of the more in, in, in interesting is a poor choice of words, but I mean, when I, I, when I teach my students the, the rise of the modern president, right? I mean, so much of this is because of laws that basically go ahead and say to a president, the executive branch has the authority to make this decision, right? Okay. Um, and in and, and that, so when I read the Antiquities Act, I was just like, good Lord, Congress, why don't you just go ahead and, you know, hand over, okay, you know, the, the, the power, I mean, because if, if you look at the Constitution, it's the United States Congress that gets to go ahead and decide what to do with property of the U.S. government, right? Right. It's not the president. But the Antiquities Act, I was just like, if you got a president like Roosevelt, okay, you might as well just go ahead and give him a you know a blank checkbook and say write you know write all the checks you want, dude. Okay, I mean it is truly astounding. Okay, well, but is the flip of that that a president could could President Biden have a completely insane afternoon and get rid of all of the national parks? Mm -hmm not the national parks proper because those are of course designated by congress sorry so the, yeah. the monument things that the presidents have have done by executive order could he say yeah i'm not feeling it i mean in in theory i've and decided to sell all practice, that to china yes. yeah yeah there's i mean the the one of the big ones that has sort of been in the news in the past couple of years is bears ears national monument out in colorado um i think which was President Obama had designated this very large area as a national monument and President Trump said, no, make it smaller. And so, and that's actually um, been taken to court at this point because that does seem to be, you know, the sort of limits of authority to make these changes has not really been explored. I think it's one of those areas and Augie may know more to say that, you know, but where sort of the limits of executive authority are unclear because they've never been tested in court. Um, apparently presidents certainly have made adjustments to monuments. They've added to them, added to it seems pretty easy, right? Because if you got the power in the first place, you can just add more, um, but the taking away- yeah, it, it, yeah, Eric's point is a good one. I mean, because unless a state or states or private, if you will, interests push back, okay, presidents expanding, okay, um, is, is well established. The difficulty is, okay, what if a president wants to go ahead and retract what a previous president has done? And then at that point, Nia, one of our favorite laws kicks in. The Administrative Procedures Act. Ah, okay. so they, they have they can't just be capricious. And as we know that that is sometimes the presidents are capricious. They are yes. arbitrary and they do something because they're just being cantankerous. Um, I would imagine that the difficulty would be so one president makes it big, another president makes it smaller, and then a third president wants to make it big again. Right. So that, that needs to be fixed, I think. When right. I'm president, I'll fix that. I'll put that on my list of things to fix. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be your contribution to this whole discussion. Exactly. <laughs> is I'm going to fix the whole, you can't just. Okay, you know. so, so Eric, a few moments ago, you went ahead and mentioned not everything 
falls under the purview of the National Park Service, right? Right. We don't get a quote-unquote National Park Service, correct me if I'm wrong, until 1916 with the infamous, and again, I'm not entirely sure why they stuck the word organic into this, the National Park Service Organic Act of 1916, okay? This <laughs> because is organic we... makes things sound cooler and they are more expensive. Do you not understand organic? <laughs> Haven't you okay. been to Whole Foods? Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the 21st century definition of organic. Okay. I'm trying to figure out about how in early 20th century United States Congress, somebody plopped the word organic oh, into it. Oh, because these people are the earliest hippies. Yeah, they're, like, they're the actually... earliest people who want to be like, dude, we got to protect the earth, man. It's organic, yeah, right? Man. Like, that's their, yeah. <laughs> it logged them instead of weed. I mean, like, that's, you know, sorry, so, I shouldn't so, be like that. But anyway, so, however, we arrive at that name, what does it do? So, th this is when we get the, the, the quote unquote National Park Service, right? Right. Right. And I mean, and organic in this case actually refers to origin, right? Like it's the origining act. And yeah. so organic uh, was that word, you know, and yeah, in fact, yeah. I think the, um, the Yellowstone Act, you know, in 1872, establishing that um, was also the Yellowstone Organic Act or something like that, I think by name. But yeah, so. Hey, so Eric. <laughs> I, I appreciate you giving us the definition of the, the word organic, okay, as in, okay, this is the origin, okay? So Congress finally creates the National Park Service, right? Right. But I mean, let, let's be very clear here. I mean, the, the United States Congress in the early 20th century, I mean, there was a, this pitch battle going on okay, uh, in the federal government between the quote-unquote progressives and many in the United States Congress, okay, who were, you know, supporting, if you will, industrialization, right? So, I mean, I'm kind of sort of fascinated by how a Congress, okay, that in many ways, okay, wasn't all that, shall we say, warm and fuzzy, okay, about, <laughs> okay, conservation, transcendentalism, okay, nature, okay, could be convinced to go ahead and create a National Park Service? Well, the, the, the easy answer is to manage bureaucracy more than anything else, I would say. Okay. <clears throat> you know, it, was, it came from this sort of realization that there were these areas that were being managed by the Department of the Interior, but also at the time, the Department of War or you know, eventually became Department of Defense, was managing some of these kinds of public lands like national battlefields were being managed through the War Department kind of originally. And that we sort of had all these kinds of things and wouldn't it make sense to bring all of that together into a like singly managed kind of unit? Um, uh, yeah, because so not... the National Park Service Organic Act create the national park service does it create the agency that is exactly oh okay yeah. so yep. now so. we so approximately 10 years after we started making these things we thought gosh there ought to be a way to organize this stuff right okay one, so. one would think that could have been done in the reverse <laughs> but when i'm president i'll fix that right i'll go back well, in time and i'll fix that and it'll all be you know yeah and the sort of the, the most famous name probably associated with this kind of effort is a guy named Stephen Mather, um, who was basically, a, he was a borax salesman. I mean, he, he, that's where he sort of made his original bones was as less like the borax itself than marketing. Like he was a real marketing genius, ended up leaving one company and helping start his, another one, became a millionaire by the you know by his 40s and quit working so he could go pursue his dream projects um and he had by that point sort of become like he had been a, a nature lover joined the sierra club met john muir um and really started to to sort of um 
lobby for and defend the idea of these parks. Um, and in 1914, he wrote to the Secretary of the Interior because he was cranky about um, kind of the abuses happening in these public lands and was sort of disgusted by it. And the legend is that, of course, he wrote to the Secretary of the Interior and the Secretary of the Interior said, well, if you got a problem with it, why don't you come out and make, you know, fix it? <laughs> and basically uh, if you he think did that. you can do better exactly right if you think you, you can do out. better step up and he was like i i can do better i can do better so he came okay. to dc you know as as an assistant secretary in the department of the interior sort of managing park stuff augie is interior one of the oldest departments um, or is it, it was, at this point a relatively baby department um it was created after the civil war Okay, okay, so it's still a young department. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because it, it wasn't what, one of the ones that was specifically enumerated in the U.S. Constitution, but it, it definitely reflected post-Civil War, the federal government recognizing, okay, we have all of this land, right? We have all of this land. Um, how do we manage it, okay? Um and again, Eric touched upon this earlier in the podcast episode, okay, as we move into the late 1800s, you start seeing a lot of conflicting pressures on what to do with all this federal land. You had commercial enterprises who are like, there is a lot of natural resources and minerals that we could mine and make money on, right? You had states that were like, hey, wait a minute here. Okay, there are huge chunks of our jurisdiction that are owned by the federal government. Okay, um, and then eventually, as you move into the late 1800s, you have the conservationists who are like, hey, wait a minute here. This is some really beautiful land. And as historians have chronicled, many of them pointed out that in industrialization, you need some place to go to slow down, right? To, to kind of, you know, take a, you know, take a breath to get a pause. Um, Recharge your batteries. Yeah, so mm -hmm. the Interior Department in many ways reflected what went on in the country post-Civil War as our economy shifted from agrarian to industrialization, but also the kinds of pressures that you saw with a faster paced American society, right? Um, and well, I gotta be, yeah. And, and the other, and another concern here is if you use it up now, then future generations will have nothing, right? Like that's the other right. thing is, even if you do believe in the use, use, use attitude, you still should be relatively conservative in the use, use, use attitude, or you get to where, we are now with with oil right oil worldwide oil production is slowing because there's it's a finite resource and there's only right. so much that you can do with a finite resource so slowing down means that you can have that resource for longer which i'm assuming at least some of the people who use users were also relatively conservative in that sense so oh. we have a bunch of mixture there well, well hold on here right Remember, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. Okay. Oh, that's right. Because this is where again our our what we know about political parties today doesn't fit the political parties in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. Okay. The Democratic Party at the turn of the 20th century was not quote unquote progressive. Right. Right. The progressives were more likely to go ahead and have, if you will, supporters in the Republican party, right? right? So this is one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by the creation of the National Park Service in 1916, because the president who signed it into law was a Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, right? I mean, Wilson was not necessarily known for his most, for, for being extremely progressive. Okay. So that would be the equivalent of that modernly would have been Donald Trump signing signing a very progressive law into Oh sure. 
into right? I, I'm I'm blanking on something that he would have signed into uh, well, law. Well, it would have been like like, like him signing in gay marriage, or Ronald would Reagan. not have been a thing he would have done. Okay. Yeah, it would have been like Ronald Reagan saying, you know, I'm going to go ahead and double down on welfare, right? I'm going to go ahead and expand it so that you know the United States becomes much like you know Scandinavian countries in Western Europe. Okay, okay. that's how shocking. Woodrow Wilson signing this law <laughs> would have been right. Okay, uh, uh, so okay. that's part of that, that's part of the reason why I was I I I, I asked Eric all these questions about the, the creation of the National Park Service. Okay, because politically it just didn't make sense. So it's a landmine politically. Like oh, it's, sure. it's it's huge drama, right? If you if you vote for that. You're you're voting against party interests if you're a Republican. No, if you're a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, sorry, if you're yes. a Democrat. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. so wow, complicated. I mean, in, in in Mather's role in all of this, okay, takes us back to how early on in our country's history, only the wealthiest would run federal government agencies, because otherwise. Who could afford to go ahead and work for the government? Right. 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 Okay. Right, because he probably got a super small, if any, salary. <laughs> In fact, his I mean, he he used his personal money, like he got his salary, it was twenty four hundred dollars a year or something like that. He used his own personal money to double his assistant salary and hire other people to help. Like the government didn't give him more money. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So it, the idea that the wealthy serve because the poor cannot afford to, um, which right. is still a problem in government, not in the middle levels of government, but in some of our higher levels of government, it's hard to be president if you're, if you're middle class. Oh, I mean, it's hard yeah. to run for the presidency. I mean, the, the expense that's, that, that that costs is enormous. Well, and again, think about the, the the salary decrease you have to accept if you become president. I mean, and, and I know many Americans are just well, yeah. Like, Jeff Bezos <laughs> for president. And he's like, "Are you kidding me? I can't take that kind of pay cut. I have alimony payments." Like, <laughs> yeah. okay. Or in this case, Bill back. Gates, right? Like, I mean, you know, I mean, that's you, you can't just. That's one of the things Lee Iacocca said about running for president. Somebody asked him, he was the president of Ford, I think. Ford, Jan, or Chrysler. 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 Okay. Yeah, and he yeah, said, yeah. and they, they said, would you, would you run for president? And he's like, I can't afford to. <laughs> but the, the difference between his CEO salary and what the president was making at the time. I mean, Nia, you and I talked about this last summer when we did the summer of the Supreme Court, okay, and the role of the clerks. You have clerks for Supreme Court justices who, after working for a justice for a year, will go out and make five, six times more money, okay, than the justice that they work for. Right. Right. And a lot of people are just like, why would you give up a lucrative, you know, job in corporate law to go work as a federal judge? Right. And Prestige again, is it. Yeah. You know, Prestige I, is it. Or respect of your colleagues. Because a lot of my students are just like, but you know, you know, justices on the Supreme Court make over two hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of coin, and I'm like, no. yeah. But if a clerk that worked for you at twenty five, okay, is leaving your office and is pulling down one point five million dollars a year, and you're seventy years old, you got to be thinking, what did I do wrong? Yeah, life right. choices. <laughs> and right. if you're a lawyer at the level of the Supreme Court justices, you could be pulling down two, oh, three, five, ten, twenty million dollars a year because people would hire you and pay you enormous amounts of money to prosecute their cases. So yeah, it, it's so rich dude. So, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. So, yeah, so rich dude Mather, okay, takes over National Park Service, and his chief lieutenant is this uh, guy by the name of is it Horace Albright? Yeah, Horace okay. Albright. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, what did they do? Okay, in, in full disclosure here, um, uh, as we conclude this episode, because we're going to have a part two. Okay, but full disclosure, I just remember their names from the PBS special, right? 
which by the way, if if you've not watched it, okay, he's got the book. Eric, Eric's holding book. up the book because he has the book. We have the book at the library if you're wondering. We do. Okay. Well, in, in, in listeners, uh, 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 Neil, let's go ahead and put this on the resource guide, right? Because okay. I think uh, I think there is, there is a link uh, for the uh, PBS special, which I was just fascinated by for a full week. I mean, I just binge so watch. Good. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, well, and it, Ken Burns did a. He, he, he was the producer. Oh, uh, oh, it's the Ken Burns one the Ken about Burns. the yeah, National yeah, yeah, Park. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's such yeah. a wonderful. Yeah, yeah okay. and his narrator's uh, Peter Coyote. I don't know about you, Eric, but I've always wanted Peter Coyote's voice. Yes, right? seriously. Yeah, I'd like him to narrate my life. If my life were more <laughs> interesting, and even, if, even, even though my life isn't particularly interesting, he could make it sound interesting. Right. Because there's something about his voice. So, so we have these guys and they're they're sort of, they've, de they've developed the NPS, the National Park Service, to the point of what having <clears throat> like range do at that point do we have park rangers <laughs> and do we have the people that we think of now as the as the sort of beginning right. infrastructure is that yeah that that sort of mathers big you know other than expanding parks i mean so sort of his original you know scope was the lands managed by the department of the interior specifically you know that were these sort of randomly things and he glommed that all together with the national park service organic act created the service right and then he worked towards really kind of professionalizing the whole idea and the big thing he did was marketing the whole service because again remember he made his bones as a marketer selling borax um so then he started selling borax. parks so, so he basically started selling parks to the u.s and and when i talked about how he used his wealth to hire this other guy who he hired was a, basically a PR expert, a writer who ah. could start, you know, working on advertising, on articles, on just all these things. They started to develop this idea of like, especially during World War One and then also World War Two, this idea of like, come visit your parks because you can't go to Europe right now. There's a war on, you know, go visit your park. <laughs> <And so> <laughs> <laughs> Get come visit your barks parks where you're much less likely to get killed. Correct, exactly. Okay. Not entirely risk free, but not not as likely as Europe. And then one of the things he did do was exactly that was was create a professional class of rangers. You know, he sort of like there were people doing this at various sites, and he you know they they decided you know that it was going to be you know healthy people who could do you know they sort of set up parameters like what makes a ranger a ranger. One of the things that is very cool is that actually from the very beginning, there were women who were rangers. Um, and ah. so it wasn't like it was just a male thing. And then eventually women came on. Probably part of that was because it was World War I, basically, you know, getting underway as they were professionalizing the Ranger Corps. And so there were opportunities to do that. But, um, but yeah, he established the uniform, did the, you know, the flat brimmed Ranger hat that was sort of, you know, it was a little different style than it is now. But, but the fundamental idea of this, like, Ranger equals person in uniform with flat brimmed hat was something that he established really early on and his assistant so that Augie mentioned um Horace Albright was like you know sort of like Mather was the idea guy the big like really um big personality guy you know and so he could really get this stuff going and Albright was like the detail you know like every big personality leader needs right like their detail right hand man good at maneuvering through congress understood dc well um, and so he, he was the one who sort of implemented a lot of that. He ended up becoming the second director of the National Park Service um, after. So Mather, who sort of said he was going to do this for a year, ended up being there from like 1915, 16 till um, in 1929, he ended up stepping down. He had had health problems, actually apparently suffered from bipolar disorder. Um, and And then Albright kind of who had taken over at times when Mather wasn't available, he had sort of come in as interim, ended up, you know, carrying it forward, expanding, they sort of both expanded the, the numbers of parks. Um, because of course, at the 
early on, it was all west of the Mississippi. And then now we had a couple parks starting to come from the east. So Acadia National Park in Maine was the first eastern park. Um, Shenandoah rolled in. Smoky, the Great Smoky National Park um, in the border of North Carolina to Tennessee, you know, so they sort of nationalized the national parks and the park service or professionalized the park service. Okay, and at that point, let's go ahead and stop, okay, and we'll pick it up for our next episode, listeners, uh, by talking about, you know, what happened after the creation, but also the experience of going to a national park, all right? So Eric, uh, uh, stay with us. We're gonna record another episode um, and uh, we'll stop right there, Great. okay? Cool, thanks guys. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.